Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Good morning, Kayla. How are you this morning? I'm good. Good morning, Lori. We are back on coming up for air. And for today's topic, we are discussing stigma, the big, the big green bug. I don't know. Is the green bug jealousy or is it stigma? I think it's jealousy. It may be jealousy. What color can our bug be for stigma? When I think of stigma, it's like, it's just, I don't know. I, I'm not a color person, so I can't think. <laughs> Maybe we could say it's black or something like that because red. it's so miserable. Yeah, black. Red, or red. I'm a color person, right? So talk to me. What do you think about stigma? You know, it's interesting because we were talking about negative thoughts and positive thoughts in our last podcast. I think of stigma as our concern about what other people think. Okay. Stigma is the stories that we basically overlay on other people. So when we think about this stigma, like going to, you know, see our relatives and they say, well, what's going on with your kids? And you're like, oh my God, I can't really talk because, you know, my kid's a mess. That's stigma. Stigma is has to do with embarrassment. It has to do with shame. It has to do with either negative stories that people are projecting or our belief that they're making up negative stories. That to me is what stigma is. And then actually being treated differently because of those stories. Discrimination because yeah, of stigma. Exactly. You know, it's very pervasive. It's so pervasive. It's when it comes to substance use disorder, stigma is just, <laughs> it just abounds. It's just, Everywhere. And and I think it's a huge, huge issue. And you'll often hear, I think in the industry, you hear that stigma kills. What does that mean? Stigma kills in that lots of different reasons, but people don't ask for help because they're experiencing stigma and discriminatory acts towards them. And people don't offer help because their thoughts about who's in front of them and their beliefs about their negative beliefs about who is in front of them and whether they deserve help or whether they even want help. All these things that we hear about, you know, they have to really want help. Well, I think that's a real stigmatizing kind of thing to do to somebody else, that it's because they want, they don't want help that we shouldn't offer help. I, I, I don't know. And in substance use disorder, it's it's so widespread, it's so pervasive. The family experiences stigma. The family can oftentimes impose stigma on their loved one. The family members won't reach out for help because they're experiencing stigma or they have perceived stigma. Then you've got the community that absolutely imposes stigma on the family and the loved one with substance use disorder. You've got this, the person, and I believe family members actually experience dual, dual doses of stigma. 
because they oftentimes, and I, I don't know if this is the right word, but a family member can vicariously experience stigma that their loved one is experiencing. Yes. But I also think that stigma comes with blame, that that's really what happens is there's blame. You wouldn't be in this situation if you weren't doing blah, blah, blah. And I think that if you're a family member, especially if you're a parent, the stigma is that you must have done something to cause substance abuse in your loved one. It's your fault. It's your responsibility. You made this happen. And that's a gigantic stigma because then why would you even be willing to go for help if you feel that sense of blame because it's your fault? People who feel blamed don't want to get help because they're afraid that they're going to go into a blaming situation. I mean, and that happened to me. That happened to me with my with my loved one. He had overdosed. We were in the hospital with him. But actually, so let me back it up because this is what I mean by vicariously experiencing stigma. He was asking for a glass of water and the nurse turned and looked at him and said, well, if you didn't shoot up heroin, you wouldn't be in this position. Like she was refusing to get him a glass of water. And so I had to go and get it. But I experienced that. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Just over a glass of water. And then on top of it, she wouldn't make any eye contact with my husband and I as if we had done something horrible. And so in the in the end, when they were getting ready to release him, she came in and she said, you know, she came in, she had like a pamphlet in her hand and she's like, do you want help? You know, just short, curt. And I stepped in and said, no, we just want to go home. So there it was. I had experienced that stigma for both my son and for myself and was like, all I want to do is get him out of here and go home. It wasn't that I wasn't going to search for help for him or anything like that, but I didn't want help from her. I wanted her to go away because the the stigma, oh my God, it, it was just so painful, right? So painful. But if you think about that, what stigma winds up doing is leading to closed doors. If the person's trying to get help and they experience that kind of judgment and negativity and and lack of willingness to help or a twisted way of helping, really, that's what you're describing. It's hard enough to get help anyway if you're struggling because you already have your own issues that get in the way of that. And if you're if you're met by that kind of judgment and criticism and blame and shaming behavior, then why would you go on for help? And so what we want to do is also set up that we're shifting the perspective here so that it's not about stigma. We're, even if you experience it as the frontline helper here with your loved one, because that's hopefully part of the, your role you get to actually address it. So for example, I'm going to give you the example of my mom. I grew up in the 60s as a kid and my brother was developmentally disabled. And at the time, there was a massive stigma about developmental disabilities, otherwise known as retarded, but I can't say that out loud now, but that's what we called it at the time. And people would say to my mother, why don't you put him in an institution? Why is he home? So my mother took this kind of warrior stance, okay, where it was like, this is my kid. This is who he is. 
I am not ashamed. I will get whatever he needs happening for him. And she fought to get his needs met. And she was stigmatized over and over again. We don't do that. That's not possible. Basically, that population was throwaway, which is exactly how substance users feel. They're throwaway. No, we're not going to do that. No, they they don't care. We're not going to help them anyway. This is just the evolution of stigma. That's where we're at now with that. So what she taught me was that you go in and you don't go in with shame. You go in with a sense of purpose and pride when you're trying to get your needs met. Okay. And that's what you emanate to your loved one is you deserve to get help. You deserve to get your needs met. You deserve to be treated well. I totally agree. Unfortunately, I think that I think that the families are in such a vulnerable place in the start of their journey. Like I was in a very vulnerable place at that particular time. Now it would be very different if that was to happen. Now you better believe I would be like, uh, uh-uh. <laughs> right? No, 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 no. But it's really hard when families are so, I mean, they're in such a vulnerable, their loved one is in such a vulnerable place. And so are they that advocating and knowing what the right thing to do is in that moment is incredibly difficult. And I think it's really important for people to start to recognize when discriminatory acts are actually taking place. And that can be really difficult or to to discern. So like now I look at it as when that nurse refused to give my son a glass of water and refused to make eye contact with us, that's actually a discriminatory act based on her belief. She is not going to render equal treatment in the emergency room to my son as she is to other patients. Maybe someone who's experiencing a heart attack might get that glass of water, but someone who's experienced an overdose won't. That is discrimination. And it starts on the microscopic level or the a more subtle level, which is what happens when you're at a family gathering, okay? So it's not always life and death. Sometimes it's more you're going to a family gathering and you know your loved one is not welcome. And sometimes that makes sense because relatives don't necessarily want somebody who's getting drunk and falling apart or going to steal from them. So we need to differentiate, you know, behavior that actually is stigmatizing and also the judgment that comes with it and the kind of dehumanizing reaction of other people's reaction. Because like I used to work in a clinic and I remember getting there and the psychiatrist would say, I cannot give any kind of psychological medication, any of the antidepressants until that person is clean, because I don't know what their actual issues are. And so what happens is then I started to think, oh, that's interesting, chicken and egg, what happens if you're depressed and you're using to treat yourself? How does this work? I also understand, you know, that that part of how doctors do their job is they're trying to figure out what your diagnosis actually is so they could give you helpful medications. And if you're taking depressants illicitly, then they don't know if you're depressed or if it's because of the meds that you're taking on your own because you're a lousy psychiatrist for yourself. I think it's a really fine line because I think that a lot of people with substance use disorder get get refused treatment for all sorts of things because they struggle with substance use disorder, right? So I think that 
you know, not for nothing, but a lot of research shows that people with substance use disorder actually do have other physical ailments, a lot of other physical ailments, as well as multiple forms of mental illness that they're struggling with. And they'll go in and they'll go searching for help. And it gets perceived as something like, well, drug seeking behavior. It happened to me, actually, I have a bad back. I was seeing a an orthopedic doctor. And through this one particular meeting, he turned to me and he said, I'm not prescribing you opioids. And I smiled at him and said, wow, (laughs) that's stigmatizing. Wow, that is really, really stigmatizing. You don't know anything about me. First off, I'm not here. I didn't ask for an opioid yet. Like I haven't asked you for that. And second off, you are assuming something about me. And I can't imagine if I did have an opioid problem and I'm standing in front of you, but I also have a back problem. You're telling me I'm not going to treat you the same as I treat other people. And I just thought, wow, tons and tons of stigma going on here. And, And that maybe saying something like that to the patient is not the way to approach it. Now, I'm going to give a little bit of a pass to the doctor because I know that there's not a lot of education out there in the medical world as far as substance use disorder and how to address it. I think there should be and there has to be, and I don't know how to get it there. But doctors being aware or the med, I personally think that's where it really needs to start. We where stigma and addressing discriminatory acts actually have to start start in the medical profession. And it also has to start with first responders and it has to bleed out that way. And, you know, that's part of why we're having this conversation is start the conversation. And I also believe that when you look at how the opioid crisis started is because doctors were indiscriminately giving opiates. So, okay, here we go. It's like, Well, I understand that there's two sides to this, but there's also how you communicate. So, for example, he could have easily have said to you, you know, it seems like opiates might be a good idea to help with your pain. But my concern is that opiates are also addicting. So that's not my first line of treatment. Yeah, that's not stigmatizing. Right. Totally different approach. And that's how we have to think about this. Right. Or even if let's say it was in my record that I had been prescribed opioids from particular doctors and the doctor suspects, "Uh uh-oh, I'm worried about that. One, I still could have a back problem. And it's important for the doctor to recognize that I still could have a back problem and not just blurt something like that out. But then the doctor could say, hey, you know, I just want to let you know, opioids are not going to be my first line of defense. I'd like to try a couple of other different methods to see if we can't get your back under control. Totally different approach than saying, I'm not prescribing you opioids, you know, like this insinuation that that's what I'm, that I'm engaging in drug seeking behavior, you know, just get that out of the, get that out of the vocabulary. So just remember that what stigma is about is the negative stories that people are making up or that we're making up and then the treatment that is attached to those stories. And so what happens is that the treatment, that stigmatizing treatment is a closing of a door. 
And what craft is about, what our work is about, is opening doors. It's about speaking truth. It's about doing it in a way that's not accusatory. It's about it's about connection. And then it's about education so that, you know, I also feel like what my mother taught me is that what people, she used the word ignorance, that when people were ignorant, they made up these negative stories. And that by us communicating and being real and speaking our truth in a lovely way, that we actually were opening doors, not only for my brother, but for other people in this situation. So it's like, how do you remove your own shame so that you could say, listen, my loved one has needs and we're just here to be treated well, to get his needs met and to be taken care of. That's all we want. And once you have that conversation with people, they get to see that they're off base. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. You know, maybe we should do another podcast episode about how to address some of this, like how do we make change when we're talking about stigma and discrimination? And I totally get, I totally get what you're saying. You're absolutely right. The family member kind of has to put their own stigma, the stigma that you're experiencing and kind of get in there with some confidence, but that can be really, really difficult for a lot of people, a lot of people. And so the more it continues on, the less likely our loved ones and us are going to be able to get the supports and the help and the resources that we need in order to change this epidemic around. Absolutely. And so the reason that we're bringing this up is because once you're conscious of it, then you have more choices. If it's this kind of unconscious process that we're either doing you know, we have our own stigma internalized and external to our loved one, or we're encountering it in the world. And then we take it personally and it's penetrating and it's making us feel separated. Then our job is to bring it up into our consciousness so that we get to do the work with it. So I'm going to bring one thing up, which is why it just kind of came to me, which is why the word enabling for family members is incredibly stigmatizing. If we can just get rid of that word, I just remember I have a cousin who went through, she was like a year, a year ahead of me with her son struggle with opioid addiction. And she said, someone had said to her, well, you're enabling, you're enabling, or she had been accused of it over and over and over again. And her response back from then on was, so what? So what if I'm enabling? You're enabling. Why can't I enable because I can't enable because my son has substance use disorder, but you can enable because your loved one doesn't. So you do things all the time with your loved one to enable and I can't do it because that's discrimination. That is stigma. I can't enable. I can't do what you can do or I can't do what you think I can't do. Right. You're placing stigma on me and telling me that I can't do the same thing that you're doing. It's not equitable. Instead, just, just stop with the words enabling and instead start to listen to people, start to listen and try and understand why does mom do things that you may perceive as enabling and why is it your opinion, your thoughts and your beliefs take precedence and allow you to kind of stigmatize towards 
this mom or this dad or this family member? What I would say with that person is, I just wonder how you think this comment is helpful to me. Do you feel like you're being helpful to me by saying that? It's like, I just want you to know that you've just made up a whole story about the situation and you don't even have enough information to make that statement. And I don't appreciate it. And that's really what it is, because if the stigma is about stories, you need to let people know that they're making up a story. Thank you for your feedback. It's not helpful, but I appreciate you trying to help. It's not helpful. So, you know, you might want to try something else. You know, I do something similar. This is what I say. I say, oh, wow. I see you've really been thinking and, and getting educated about substance use disorder. And um, have you looked at this methodology? It's called CRAFT, Community Reinforcement and Family Training. I've done a lot of research on my own, and I have decided that I'm going with this method. If you'd like more information and you'd like to understand it a little bit better, here's the Allies in Recovery website. Go there and you can do some reading. And then why don't, you know what, do you want to set up a time and let's talk about this later on, after, right? And I'm, I let them know, no, look, I'm not an idiot, right? I can do some thinking for myself and I'm more than willing to have a discussion with you. But oftentimes I don't believe that the person has done any research on- Exactly. They've done nothing. They're just, they're just judging me. Not helpful. That's really a good place for us to end this probably, which is, if you are choosing to do Allies in Recovery, which is based on the craft model, you have created a frame that you're going to work in. Okay. And that's one of the things that I really like about this, because it gives you a model to work in. It gives you ways to think about it. It gives you support. It gives you education. And it gives you kind of a, a way to strategize how you're going to move forward. And so... When it comes to stigma, people are making up stories. And what craft is about is you're taking the story apart and you're changing the story. So craft and allies in recovery is the anti-stigma proposal here. It's like you're consciously moving forward. You're addressing things with your eyes wide open and you're making changes and different choices. This is how you get to take your power back. Stigma takes away power. Choices actually give you your power back. And that's the power of working this program and doing the craft model. Well, thank you, Kayla. That was a great discussion. And to all our listeners, don't let stigma and discrimination get in your way. Get that confidence together. And you can do that. Actually, you can get started on craft by doing our 10-day challenge, which is watching four of, or well, there's eight modules. So watching half of our modules doing the activities that are in those modules, and then um, doing that in a 10-day period, and you get a free, immersive, five-hour, one-day training, typically worth about $250. But for those that complete the challenge, you get it for free. So I'll talk to you again next week, Kayla. Take your power back. <laughs> there you go. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.